Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. When you love meat, you find a way to take it with you everywhere you go, especially when it comes to getting outdoors. That's why Smithfield has so many high-quality, delicious meats that are perfect for any outdoor adventure. Whether the park you're headed to is a national park or just the one down the street, like Smithfield marinated roasted garlic and cracked black pepper fresh pork tenderloin, expertly seasoned for on-the-go flavor, or prime fresh smoked ham that'll have you building on-the-go sandwiches packed with flavor. Smithfield Extra Meaty Back Ribs bring hand-selected perfection to the backyard, and Smithfield Anytime Favorites will help you take the ham you savor to the places you love. From diced ham that'll turn any picnic into an outdoor feast, to hickory smoked boneless ham steaks that are the perfect cap to any hike. The great outdoors just got greater with Smithfield. For the love of meat. going on everybody welcome to another episode of the nomad strength show i'm ross hillier your host today i am joined by bo sandoval my good buddy he is the director of strength and conditioning at the ufc performance institute in las vegas uh, has been there for a handful of years prior to that was in the college strength and conditioning world for about a decade he's been all over has been very successful in the strength and conditioning field and uh i've been wanting to talk to him and get him on the podcast for a long time because he has such cool insights on a lot of things and we got into a couple of those things today on the show specifically uh, about the culture of strength and conditioning coaches at the collegiate level and sort of the issues that Bo has with what's become of the way that strength coaches are treated and the way that he sort of made things different where he was at a big, huge power school uh, in the University of Michigan and, and talks about how he handled those situations and then you know how he recommends that other coaches in those positions handle the those situations for themselves. Uh, we also talk about how Bose had sort of a quote unquote enlightening experience while training under uh, our mutual friend and former guest of the podcast, Greg Walsh, in the last handful of months and the benefits that he's seeing in his own training and mental, uh, in mental and physical ways. And then also how he's applying that to the fighters now at the UFCPI. Uh, we also got into some cool stuff talking about some hunting and in our shared experiences with hunting and uh, jujitsu and just kind of all over the map. But I kind of knew this is how we're going to be when I talked to Bo because he is a member of the now infamous group chat that I've mentioned on this podcast a handful of times now. So uh, a lot of this stuff I knew would get him fired up and wanted to talk about. So I was excited to get to actually have him on the mic and talk to him a little bit more in depth than rather just over the, uh, the you know, the text machine or the DMs on Instagram. So this is a really fun episode. Bo's a great guy. Make sure you go follow him on Instagram. He puts out tons of great content and is super approachable. Like if you've ever got strength conditioning questions, uh, feel free to reach out. He's always uh, very good about responding. We actually 
actually talk about it towards the end of the episode. Uh, it's not always timely uh, all the time, but he does actually do pretty much respond to everybody and he's super knowledgeable and just a great guy. So it was a pleasure to have him on today. Uh, before we get into the episode, if you haven't done so, please go rate, review, subscribe, follow, whatever those buttons are on your platform of choice. Uh, it does help the podcast grow. And then secondly, uh, to bring up that now it's launched and official, the Nomad Strength membership tribe is open. If you are wanting to be a part of this community that is uh, getting stronger by the day and we're doing things in a community way, uh, go check out the tribe and see what we're all about. You can go to tribe.nomad-strength.com. That's tribe.nomad-strength.com. Go check it out and see what we're all about. And and come on in and be a part of what we're doing. So without further ado, this is Mr. Bo Sandoval. All right, everyone. Welcome to the Nomad Strength Show. Today, I'm joined by my boy, Bo Sandoval, who is a member of the, I don't know if you'd say infamous at this point. I've mentioned our group chat so many times on this podcast. I don't know if we'd say famous or infamous, but he is a member of the group chat. So uh, it's been a pleasure to get you on finally, man. How you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. It's a it's a good Sunday so far. So yeah, man. I got nothing to complain about. Awesome. Yeah, I've I've mentioned and I've had several of the guys from the group chat on this show at this point. So it's kind of funny that it just comes up so often. Like when we talked about it with Logan yeah. for such a long time, it's just a it's just such a ridiculous <laughs> thing that we became a part of, and it's been fun to get like all the different uh, backgrounds of everybody kind of all yeah. get connected and become just like this cool little miniature network that we've been involved in now for like six months. <laughs> it's nice too, because we're so scattered. Yeah. And so, you know, you, you roam around in your little microcosm of life around the, the people that you run into and interact with on a daily. So to have some fingers out there that are getting perspective on things from different parts of the country and in different genres of the workforce and everything else, it's just a nice, nice to just get a kind of a, a glimpse, a perspective of what's going on in other places. So other than the, all the jackassery that goes on in that chat. But. And there's there's a there's a decent <laughs> amount of that too. I mean, I I know I, I think you you've told me a couple of times, but I'm sure it's the same with most of the guys that have I think all of us are married, but uh <laughs> like sometimes Molly will just catch me like just giggling like a little girl <laughs> at my phone because I'm just reading what you guys are doing. So I'm sure it's the same oh, with yeah. you too. Oh yeah. It's it's awesome. So uh I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you this because I go back I always forget what the actual title is. So are you considered director or head coach? What is the title of, of what yeah, you're so doing right they, now? Officially, they named me the director of strength and conditioning for the UFC Performance Institute. It's a, it's a head coaching role. It's, um, that whole, you know, every, every company, whether it be a sporting organization or a private business, they all kind of set their hierarchy of pay scales and positional, you know, ladders. They set them up all how they want. And so we have, yeah. we have executives, we have vice presidents, we have, um, directors, coordinators, managers, um, and some other tiers of entry level positions. But so when we, when the Institute got kind of brought on as an entity within the UFC, that kind of set us up in the same scale. So director sometimes makes gotcha. me seem like I'm a whole lot more important than I am, but um, yeah, it's a head coaching role. It's man, it's, it's an awesome, awesome role. Work with a lot of great colleagues there and get to oversee some really good ones. So it's a, it's a good time. 
And you came from, uh, you were at the university level for a long time, right? In the strength conditioning piece. Where how, where did that kind of journey take you in through to get to Sure. Well, I was at a small NAIA school. It's actually a division two now, two or three school now, uh, Bellhaven College in Jackson, Mississippi, hmm. from 2005 to 2007. And um, yeah, I just come out of University of Southern Mississippi as a grad student for two years. And also as a three and a half year intern in that department at Southern Miss as well. Um, went up to Jackson, got my feet wet in college athletics and particularly small program, uh, 14 varsity sports, which meant 14 head coaches that were way more experienced than me. Um, coming out of school at 24 years old, um, you know, definitely eager and well-equipped with the with what I got exposed to at Southern Miss. I got a lot of coaching opportunities when I was down there. I had also kind of done a lot of volunteerships, internships within my GA program. We were traveling all the time, bouncing around. Anyone that would let us observe or or just be a fly on the wall or do a short-term internship, we were we we were the guys that were nosy and asking and a lot of times got told no and sometimes got told yes and but um after a couple years at Bellhaven I I interviewed and competed for a position with the Olympic Committee uh, in Colorado Springs and was there for a couple of years until mid-2009 is where I got recruited to be an assistant at uh, University of Michigan and I was at Michigan from 2009 until 2017 when I moved on to the UFC. So quite a stint there. Um, so it was, it was nice awesome. to have a perspective of, you know, very, very small college athletics um, and then also kind of get thrown in head first into a giant Division One program um, to yeah. get an idea of what, what that looks like. How what, what was that? I mean, was that kind of like shell shock, go to that? I mean, and then to be at... Of all places, University of Michigan, like one of the most well-known programs ever. Yeah, right? you know, it's just a different series of battles, right? I mean, it's um, the cream at both is that you get to work with young aspiring athletes. The calibers are all over the 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 map. You know, when we were when I was at Bellhaven, we had kids that could have played Division One that were extremely talented that yeah. just couldn't either get it done academically or we were a performing art, performing arts school as well. So we had some that were, man, we had a couple of really talented football players that were just genuinely interested in screenplay or genuinely interested okay. in, in dance or, you know, these other things. So uh, really intellectual kids that just happen to know how to throw a ball really well or catch it really well. Um, yeah, but anyhow, you know, at the University of Michigan – I mean, every kid there is recruited. Um, even the, you know, even our walk-ons and things, they, they have their eye on them. And, you know, there's very few yeah. that just wander in out of nowhere. Most of them, there have been some eyeballs on them that have helped guide them into that, to that program. So, but, you know, Michigan's one of those places, they got a ton of money. They're stingy as hell. They don't want to spend it. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's just a, it's, it's a, the same sporting venues and everything. Um, it's just different battles, different, um, different levels of success and different levels of shortcomings, depending on who's managing, who's, uh, who the administration is, um, you know, what their alternative agendas are, what their, you know, what their, uh, 
what's the, their storylines and timelines of what they're trying to get done. Yeah, you would sure. think it's always to win Big Ten championships, but it's not. Not always the case. Well, and that's something that we've talked about, like in that uh, in that shared group a couple of times. Is I mean, because you had such a. I mean, a lot of the guys come from or in the college or come from like the team sport thing and strength and conditioning. And you've been fairly vocal to us about like your displeasure with the system in general. It's in, in regards to especially how it treats the strength coaches. Like, can you, you know, for people who aren't necessarily sure. in the know, like describe why you're so kind of. Un- yeah, I mean, look, I think there's a lot of people in the know, but when you're in the middle of it, you got to be diplomatic on how you spit your words and how you fight your battles and things like yeah. that. I always, I, I had a great conversation with Scott Volkortsen uh, just a couple of weeks ago on this kind of stuff. And I've always made it apparent from day one, if they were recruiting me and I was competing for a position, I was very upfront, you know, they're recruiting me because what they think I'm good at what they think my talents are, my intellect, how I can influence a program. Those are, that's my value. Well, in order to get your hands on that, then they, they need to understand what, what values I have. Like what, what do I value within their program? Cause if then those two things can't line up, I'm not going to be the right employee for you. And so I was always very upfront that my family comes first. So there's gotta be, you know, within all these ambitions and all these things that you want to put my talents to work so that I can achieve things for you and your department and your program, I gotta be able to have A, B, and C for my family. And a lot of that has to do with spending time with them. Um, you know, we don't need to buy a million dollar house. We don't need to have six cars or anything like that. I need to have time with them. I need to be present and around with my kids and with my wife. And so, um, when you when you set that right off Jump Street, you can have a pretty good work if they continue to pursue to employ you. You can have a pretty good working relationship, and so what that does also is it gives me some leverage later on to have more impactful conversations because I've already set a standard of how we're going to operate, and then it lets me yeah. get myself into a position where I can debate things when silly stuff is going on, when I hear coaches that are having a hard time. Um, because, you know, their head coach wants them to be the disciplinarian and, you know, there's, there's less emphasis on strength and conditioning and more emphasis on being the guy who pushes them through running sprints because they showed up late for practice. Um, I'm definitely going to speak up about that because, um, you have a problem with leadership. If, if that's what you're dealing with and you're pawning those things off onto me, someone's hired you with an expectation that you were going to be a leader, you've come up short and now you're going to lean on me. Well, we're going to have a conversation about that because <laughs> uh, you don't pay me enough <laughs> yeah. for that. So um, I've never right. had a problem being vocal with those types of things. I've always been it, it's give and take. If I'm going to expect to have that level of conversation, I'm going to make sure that I get to that level with that coach. So I've always worked yes. really hard to build relationships with coaches to where when it comes time to have a debate or when it comes time to play devil's advocate and help them make more strategic decisions, especially when it comes to around managing the health and well-being of the athlete. Because, you know, everyone thinks that our whole job is performance, performance, performance. Well, there's about 40, I would say right. 40 to 60 percent of that is optimizing potential. So even if I didn't have them touch a weight, if they didn't do a single session with me, what are we doing to coordinate things 
the best to where we can optimize what they have in the tank right now? Can we even get to game day with what they have in the tank right now to where it's operational? Or are we so run down in the mm-hmm. ground? Are we so sleep deprived? Are we so stressed out about our studies? Are we so, you know, for whatever reason, stretched thin in a million different directions aside from optimal performance on that day? So, I, you know, that that's where um, if you're going to be effective, I had to establish in a relationship with those coaches to where I could get into those types of debates and scenarios where we could be strategic about our decisions. Um, it also it also gave a lot of validity to my role and um, and gave some value to what I bring to the table. I'm not just the guy that waits on them at three o'clock every day. Okay, time to hang and bang, step in. We're done hanging and banging, get out. Um, I just wanted to always yeah. make it apparent that that wasn't going to be the only role. So, Do you think that that uh, in, in a lot of the big, especially like in the big university settings, or even like I would say even maybe even the, the mid-level range, that's not the case because a lot of those coaches won't like from the jump be vocal and set those standards like you said like are they is it like they're afraid to do that because they kind of are seen as the underling of the head coaches yeah. or that kind of thing do you think that's well, a lot we've of kind of happens? dug ourselves in this hole where um we we've become this sort of uh utility player um that almost like a laborer does the dirty work but doesn't really yeah. you know play a role in anything else um well in most cases, it takes two degrees to sit in those seats. Aside from those two degrees, it takes upwards of four or five years worth of experience, interning, volunteering, coaching at other levels to where you can even become eligible in that. So I tell people all the time, man, you got to be selective and critical when you're interviewing with someone. If it's become apparently clear that your um, your intellect is not going to be used or that your opinions are not going to be relied upon on a daily basis. That's not what you're looking for. I mean, if you spent that time accumulating those degrees and that much experience to go in and just be a whooping boy and no, dude, that that's a, that's a janitor. You can find those anywhere. Um, Not to knock on janitors, but you know, when even, even if I'm a janitor, if, if, if I'm going to apply for a role, then I've got such and such experience. My experience is cleaning nuclear warheads, then I want to make sure that shit's getting applied appropriately. You know what I mean? Um, so yeah, uh, that's just me putting value on myself. But we have coaches. We've built this yeah. culture. We've dug ourselves in this hole where um, we just are happy for crumbs, man. We're just like, oh my, they're giving me an offer. I'm taking it. I don't care how far I have to move, how much in debt I have to get into to get there. And I don't care if I have to work, you know, 22 hours out of the day, making $9 an hour. I'm a, I'm a college coach. I just, I think those days are, at least I hope those days are long gone. And that that mindset is starting to change. Um, But that's that mindset that allows us to get pinned in these positions where a head coach is like, hey, this is what we're doing in the weight room today. This is what we're doing for conditioning. And this is what we're doing for eating and whatever else. And, you know, that that's, they're not educated in that. And let's be real about yeah. 90% of coaches are not educated in how, to, in how to use a performance team. They don't know how to use a medical staff. Right. They don't, no one teaches them how to use a strength coach. They don't, they don't know how to employ those positions. So the amount of, of dictatorship that they get stuck into in some of those roles is kind of bass backwards 
Um, but a lot of it is because the experts in those roles, and I'm talking about some of the medical staffs too, they don't set the tone from day one on what their expertise are, how they can be influential, and how to employ those skills and tactics. Like you, you have you have to play yeah. a role in sticking those stakes in the ground. Otherwise, it'll never come to fruition. So, you know, it's not as black and white as me walking in going, I'm Bo Sandoval and this is what we're going to do, head coach. It's not like that. <laughs> right. It's it's building a rapport and building a relationship while setting standards of operation as you go um, to get to a point where you can work harmoniously in being a supplemental aspect to that sport. Because that is what we are. We're right. very supplemental to what the big picture deal is with, with a sport, especially when it comes to accumulating to winning championships. Um, now, the reason I say, you know, things are kind of turning and I'm hopeful that things are turning. There's a couple of really big programs out there right now that have practices in place where every year, um, every single head coach goes through an onboarding system with the strength staff. Mm. The strength staff is saying, okay, here are my skills. Here's what I, here's what I prioritize. And they go through an onboarding process of how to utilize that strength coach, um, and set standards on, here's what we will do. Here's what we will refrain from doing or avoid doing kind of thing. Um, and there's, there's some big division one programs that do that. And those coaches, those head coaches, for the most part, they're you're usually pretty grateful for that. Um, because yeah. they, they have an understanding and they have a deeper, I think, um, uh, a deeper purpose on how to use that personnel. In most cases, dude, that's a 40, 50, 60, hundred thousand dollar a year position. That's empowering for a head yeah. coach to know how to use that kind of investment. Um, totally. And that goes to the saying like with, uh, you know, a lot of these, especially like in the big, you know, power five type schools. And then especially with football, like the head coach of those programs are seen as like the CEO of the entire yep. thing. Right. And so when you have, but it's just like being any good manager, like you can't micromanage every aspect of everything. If you well, be you'll be limited like to what you, you know which isn't very much. Exactly. So you got to understand, like I'm bringing people on that know a lot more than me at a certain thing and just trust them to do the thing yeah. that they're good. Oh at. yeah. By the way, you know, that's, that's called the teamwork, the which all these team sports <laughs> exactly. will beat their recruits in the head as they bring them in. Yes. But they can't operate that way. And that I'm, exactly. I'm a, I'm a huge advocate for just serving that right up in their faces because um, you know, you can't, you can't be the whole, you know, that whole mantra of I'm a coach, do as I say, not as I do. That's bullshit. Um, right. And it trickles down into People every aspect of life. Now. I mean, look at some of these politicians and CEOs that come crumbling down. Yeah. It's because they can't operate by what they deem upon those that work for them. Um, Yes, it's the rules for the, rules for thee, not yeah, for I mean, me. Yeah, it's way easier to point at a bunch of people carrying the load versus carrying the fucking load. Like, exactly. <laughs> that's way different. Exactly. Totally. So how does that, so so that sort of mentality and system systemizing that you built up in that team sport thing, how did that translate where now it's a super individual process that you're working with, with fighters? Like, or, I mean, or do you consider it working like with a team still because they've got their people around them? Or like, how did that change when you go to this sport? That I you're think in the, the biggest 
change is that when you have an individual sport, and that, this is what I loved about working with track and field um, for a number of years, working with wrestling for a number of years, they train in team scenarios. And that's what MMA fighters do. They train in team scenarios. They rely on training partners. They rely on coaches' eyes. They, re- You know what I mean? But once they step into the competitive arena, you might hear a voice every now and then throwing some cues at you, but you're on yeah. your own. You know, that, that performance yep. totally relies on your execution of everything you've been rehearsing and practicing and training. And I think that mindset brings the martial side of martial arts. That that mindset mm-hmm. of this is up to me, that brings a martial intent into how you train, how you work a technique, how you um, address conditioning, how you address a resistance training methodology um, with a martial attitude, with a, a high degree of execution, which a lot of times, you know, strength and conditioning falls down this toilet bowl of completion. Let's complete this, complete this. Mm -hmm. And you're just completing all these arbitrary workouts without really getting better at anything. Whereas these guys have to rely on this martial intent around everything that they do so that those incremental gains around being so attentive to detail accumulate day by day by day. Um, and so we have this very, you know, this mantra that we carry is much more an execution based training model versus a completion based, mm-hmm. uh, mentality. Um, our, our good buddy, Greg Walsh, man, he had an awesome, um, quote that, that I snagged off of him. He said it very casually, um, to someone and I just grabbed it out of thin air and it wasn't even something mm-hmm. that they harped on or, or, or beat on a drum, but it really resonated with me is that we want you to get better every day forever, not just when some arbitrary training day. So they're like, oh, I did Murph today. Murph is done. I did it. Everybody, look, I did it. I did the Murph. I did the, well, how many actual squats did you do? How many actual pull-ups did you do? Um, And were you running or was it a zombie apocalypse when you ran? You know, what, what did it look like when you were running? So was there any stretch shortening cycle at all when you were running? Um, right. and so that, that's what that really boils down to. And that's kind of the, uh, from at a, at a very individual level myself and the coaches that work with me. Um, and even I would say down into how our medical practitioners and our dietitians work. Um, it's with a martial level of, of detail, just very articulate around, um, what's going to influence that individual. Um, and just like everything else, yeah. we go after low hanging fruit first. And then in the meantime, all the peripherals are accumulating into some of the bigger picture, long term, you know, changes and, and influences of what's going to impact their game. But um, so yeah. there's a lot of similarities. But I would say one of the biggest ones is just really having a a completion based and detail oriented process versus falling down the drain, which some of us do sometimes of just getting things completed. Yeah. Um, with that quality control slipping a little bit. Well, and you mentioned Greg too, and and you've been working with Greg for a little while now, and I had him on podcast about a month or so ago, and he and I connected at Summer Strong as well. Um, but you've been uh, implementing some of the stuff, like with the maces and stuff, into those guys and gals over at the UFC. And so how has that been translating over into what they're yeah. doing there with that stuff? Well, for one, as someone that's been um, – so I started my education in strength and conditioning in the year 2000. So 21 years worth of d- throwing my head into books and 
and exams and um, certifications and clinics and um, seminars. I mean, you name it over and over year after year. I'm active year after year. There's dozens mm-hmm. of them. Um, and the last about 11 months with chatting, oh, it hasn't quite been that long, nine months, chatting with Greg, sending him videos of myself, um, dissecting his programs, asking questions, um, getting an understanding of the progressions and regressions of what they do, understanding the scaling of it, um, getting a ton out of the mental aspect of it, uh, the mental approaches and the the tweaks Mm -hmm. and the cadence and the prescription to affect the mental side of training. Um, has been extremely enlightening. For someone that's been doing this for 20 years, this has been an enlightening nine months. It's taken things that I've historically done and really just refined them times 100. Um, I, I would, you know, he keeps asking me for feedback on, and I'm like, really the feedback is refinement, 360 degree refinement. Yeah. I've been doing RDLs for years, but the the level of detail in every aspect of it um, and correctives around, you know, scaling up or down uh, the performance mm-hmm. paradigm with an RDL. I mean, I've, I've learned a ton in nine months on something what we take for granted as being so simple, right? So then, um, right. you know, that's, that's the big aspect is really taking all these skills and all these methods that I have crammed in my head and really just upgrading each and every one of them um, has been a tremendous asset. Um, and then on top of that, yes, learning how, um, heavier than I thought kettlebells and heavier than I thought maces could insulate our traditional barbell work and supplement our traditional barbell work. And I, the other thing I've really like gained that I love too, is not having to rely on cables, supportive equipment, things where you're not standing on your own two feet. Um, Not to say those things don't have some value and we do use them, but I don't have to rely Mm -hmm. on them. I don't, there, there are things that I can do in open space, standing on my own two feet, controlling my midline, controlling my center of mass over my base of support while yielding or wielding this odd object that has no balance point Mm -hmm. that has no center to it, that is uncooperative that takes a relative level of strength that I don't have to necessarily always tap into under a very well-balanced barbell. Um, right. And that's the, that's like the minimalist approach to it too, which you're like, that's, I mean, now you're speaking my language. That's what that's I, that's no what I've been way. on for yeah. like, uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so, <laughs> you know, again, not to say we don't use those things. We do. We, we, um, right. I've always been an advocate of making the toolbox as deep as possible. Um, and yes. when you have access to certain things, they can be a great utility. Um, but in terms of meat and potatoes, what is, on the daily basis, on the regular, what is the what is the regular? What do those staples look like? Um, they are heavy barbells. They are heavy kettlebells. Heavy maces. Anything heavy that will allow us to move in free space, just like we would in fighting. I don't get to lean on a landmine attachment when I fight. I don't get to stay connected by a third point of contact to a cable when I'm when I'm resisting midline instability. Um, so being able to do those now, those can be progressive things to lead me into greater skills, I believe. 
with a mace and with a kettlebell and things like that. Um, but even some of the, the body weight um, exercises and the scalability of things that I, I just yeah. never knew existed. I've yeah. never been taught that. Um, has really opened up a lot of pathways and doorways um, and versatility to how we condition. You still there? Oh, lost you there for a Yeah, it's really added some versatility to how we condition, how we, um, yeah. how we can focus on things like stability without being boring, how we can focus on things like, um, like mobility without being boring, um, breathing mm-hmm. without being boring, you know, they're, because they're challenging. The methods that they've developed and engineered, um, they will make you contemplate quitting over and over again, which I love. Yeah. I, I mean, I, <laughs> yeah. I would say 90% of the messages I send to Greg after I'm done training, it has something to do with me battling myself in my head around quitting. Like, Whoa, you, yeah. it's either Screw you do this me today or <laughs> I was really close, but yeah. I won today. Like, you know, yeah. yeah so man. I love that aspect of it. It's pretty, not to say you got to take them through that That's awesome. for 10 minutes every day, but sometimes it's only like five right. seconds, but I think, it, yeah, it I think to sometimes. touch it frequently, over and over again, it really does a lot for your mental fortitude. Absolutely. And even from a, even from actual like physiological standpoint too, in, in terms of intensity, like we need, you know, like, again, this doesn't need to be frequent by any means. Uh, but every once in a while, like you said, it's good to push like those, that very end limit and touch those very end corners of things physiologically as well, not even just for your right. head, but like that does a lot of good stuff yeah. for you also. You know, Hicks and Gracie always told this story when he, everyone asked like when he was a kid, how he made him, got himself, cause mentally he was arguably like the toughest of all the Gracies that came out of there. And they asked him mm-hmm. like, how, you know, how did you get yourself that way? How could you just take a snorkel and jump into a freezing river only breathing out of the snorkel without panicking, flailing, sprinting out of the mm-hmm. river like everyone else would? And um, he said that he told this story about when he was a young kid. Most of the time he was training with adults. You know, those guys got tossed the gi when they were like five years old. And so by the time he's like yeah. eight, nine years old and, and he's um, he's a blue belt and, you know, he's rolling with a, a, a grown up and someone puts him in a rear headlock to the point where the guy was so strong and he knew the technique to escape. The guy was so strong that he literally strangled him until he tapped out because he started to panic. And so he got his older brother Holes to basically wrap him up in a piece of carpet, like a big ass, like you would put down in a room, mm-hmm. roll him up in a piece of carpet and he would sit there and you're basically just suffocating in this roll of carpet, right? Ugh. Until he could get himself to calm down and he said he would start thinking about the beach and seagulls and salt water and sand and he would just relax. And when he was relaxed, he'd be like, okay, you can take me out and they'd unroll him and take him out. And he did this several times just to learn how to calm his head down. And then he eventually got exposed to cold water immersion, same kind of thing. And, you know, he got to the point where he was doing this daily and he was doing that so that mentally he would never get to a point when he would panic if he got himself in a bad situation on a mat or in a fight that he would be able to cognitively cognitively work his way out because he wasn't in a physical panic. Um, And yeah, that, I mean, that was 50 years ago and that translates into exactly what we're talking about right now. Well, and that's a good segue too, because I actually wanted to ask you, you, you just did a, like a 30 day cold shower experience not too long ago. How'd that, I mean, that's a pretty good segue into it. How did, did you experience a lot of that same stuff? 
as far as I've, the calming. You know, like most knuckleheads, when when the idea of cold water immersion became a good idea, it was like, all right, let's jump in. And so I remember I was at the OTC at the time, and Dr. Bill Sands had done a bunch of research on recovery, and he had created this recovery center for the athletes there, and it had cold tubs in it. And the first time I got in it, I was like, I mean, I'm, you know, just like everybody else and, you know, <laughs> panic breathing and clenching my fist and my knuckles were white and like, you know, and really didn't even, I mean, I would say in the 90 seconds I was in there the first time, never relaxed once. When I got out, that was the relief yep. when I got out. Um, so I would yep. say it took four or five trips before I got a beneficial run at it. Um, what I was interested in with the 30 day shower cold shower challenge was the idea that it was a progressive approach to introduction which i did not have mm -hmm. and i don't think a lot of people get and i have a lot of athletes that are interested but they are mortified of cold water or when they try it for once they're scarred and they never want to get back in it again yeah and so that was kind of my once i heard your method around doing that i was like oh that sounds like a great progression i'm gonna i'm gonna run that um and it was awesome. I mean, for one, it is very progressive. The time, you know, gets longer and longer. Um, effectively working on nasal breathing while you're doing it. Um, it's interesting. So the first couple, the first few showers are 30 seconds. So you're in there for 30 seconds trying to focus on, well, that's only like four nasal breaths. So what I found myself yeah. doing is focusing more on the breathing and then like, shit, I can't wait till these showers get longer so I can actually spend more time on the breathing. <laughs> yeah. um, so by the time I was getting into <laughs> exactly. the three minute and the five minute showers, um, you don't even realize that it's cold really because you're focusing on the breathing aspect. Mm -hmm. um, and then once I got into the tub, so we have cold tubs at the OTC. So for some people, access to cold tubs can be challenging if you want to buy a ton of yeah. ice and throw it in a trough or something like that. Um, and yeah. so we keep our tubs at the, at the, at the PI, we keep them at 52 degrees. Um, so okay. got in there the first time it was still a shocker. That's quite a bit colder than what my shower gets. Um, but I would say yeah. within the first 10 seconds, I was able to get into some deep nasal breathing. I was up to my collarbones nice. in, the, in the tub and, you know, ours are nice. pools. So I'm standing vertical. I'm not, a lot of guys will lay down, you know, Oh, cool. so I'm standing vertical. Yeah. Um, and the first thing I noticed once I kind of was there for four, four and a half minutes was that my toes were kind of going numb. So I just started kind of pacing really mm -hmm. slow in place and, um, still focusing on nasal breathing. And then it was, it was fine. I think I did total. I did about four and a half minutes and then got out. Um, but I think the, the shower time, the progressive shower time is what really got me dialed into my routine rhythm of nasal breathing. And also I think, I mean, from the physical standpoint, it's challenging if you're not used to it, to get your, your chest and your belly to expand, to get your ribs to expand when you're in cold yeah, water. Definitely. To really get everything to just open up and inflate is the challenge. And those showers mm -hmm. really help with that. So by the time I got myself fully immersed, um, it really wasn't as challenging. I read anticipated. That's all I kept telling myself. Like, all right, you got to get the barrel to open up, get the, get everything to expand. Right. And it really wasn't that hard at all. And I attribute that to just so many repetitions within that 30 days. Um, so it was cool. I've awesome. since have advised a, a few athletes in that progression. Um, there's some of them that are halfway through it right now. Some of them have finished it. Nice. Um, but you know, and it's the ones that are, they're genuinely interested in how to implement that into their recovery protocols. Yeah. They just don't have a good system to get introduced to it.
That's awesome. And it, and it it's funny too, because you mentioned with the Gracie story and being calm, like that was one of the main, you know, there's all kinds of recovery benefits physiologically of being in the ice. But one of the things that I love the most about it is just the aspect of being able to deal with super acute, high stressful moments, right? And then being calm in those things and then translating that over into any other things. And I've noticed since starting jujitsu a little over six months ago now that I am very comfortable in a lot of those really uncomfortable positions because I am aware that like I can slow this down and start inhaling and exhaling through my nose and like be calm for a minute so I can think and then apply like whatever I need to apply, you know, and the ice is like, and it's the same reason Gracie did it 50 years ago. Like it just teaches you to be calm when things are crazy yep. and suck. Yeah. I mean, from a bioenergetic standpoint too, like, you know, jujitsu is exertion and, and, Hickson talks about that a lot. He's like, you know, I didn't want to just learn how to breathe, sitting still in a yoga pose. I wanted to know how to do yeah. to do it when things were stressful. How do I breathe when I want to explode? How do I want to breathe when I want to relax? So he had a he had a guy, um, I forget what they called it, something gymnastica, like biogymnastica or something like that, is what he mm. called it. But it was basically techniques on breathing while in different intensity levels of activity. And um, you're yeah. right. I mean, there's a time in jujitsu where you want to take a couple of deep ones and slow down and relax so that you can recover your mm -hmm. grip and you can recover positions with your feet and things. And then there's a time when you need to explode and you need to breathe like a piston and you need to, you know, exert yourself. So what a great I mean, that sport will teach you that more than than almost anything. Um because there's yeah. so many tempos sure. of it, you know, it's, it's the roller coaster ride of high speed, super slow, park your car, high speed again, super slow, you know, it's all over the map. Yeah. And, uh, so did you start prior to being involved in like the martial arts world or did you like get into it once you got over to UFC and then like, you're like, okay, I need to get in on this. These are all the these breathing guys doing. or Jiu-Jitsu. No, the jiu -jitsu. So I, when I was in yeah. college at Southern Miss, um, my boss at the time, Charlie Dudley, um, he had heard about some local law enforcement doing a Gracie jiu-jitsu class in town, and he wanted to go do it. He didn't want to go do it by himself. So I was uh, one of his <laughs> interns. I was about to be a grad student for him, and he was like, hey, I'm going to go try this jiu-jitsu thing. First class is free. You want to try it with me? I was like, sure, why not? And he's like, I think it's just a bunch of skinny guys that are just going to strangle us for an hour, but we can just check it out. I'm like, all right, <laughs> sounds good. And that's exactly what happened. It was, it was a it Pedro was. <laughs> Sauer affiliate school. I'm still in contact with those guys today. Man, that was a great group of guys that introduced me into that. Mm -hmm. uh, Chad Pittman down in uh, Hattiesburg, Mississippi. He's still down there. Uh, former military, law enforcement, um, does a lot of teaching with local law enforcement and military now today still. Uh, I think he's like a, I don't know, two or three stripe black belt by now. He was a, oh, wow, he nice. was a purple belt starting this affiliate school for us, you know, back then. So oh, wow. he was really trying to give himself an opportunity to get exposed to more while getting all of us kind of on board. But anyhow, that's where I started at. I trained with those guys for about two and a half years, got a couple stripes on a blue belt, and then moved moved away, took my first job. When I got to Jackson, I mean, there was no jujitsu anywhere. Um, the only time I trained yeah. was uh, when I went back to Hattiesburg, which was, wasn't that often. 
then when I got to the Olympic Committee, um, there was some jujitsu around, nothing that I was excited about um, that was close. I mean, I'd have to drive like 45 minutes, but we had the national judo team right there. And a lot of judo oh, nice. players, cross-trained jujitsu. Uh, plus, you learned a lot of valuable stand-up gi in, in judo. Totally. So I did go in there and get tossed around quite a bit. Um, being a strength coach for the national teams for freestyle wrestling, Greco-Roman wrestling and women's freestyle, I got tossed around quite a bit just wrestling as well. So still was able to stay familiar, but I wasn't formally training for jujitsu at the time. Um, right. At Michigan, I had zero jujitsu. For eight years, I didn't do anything. I'd fart around every now and then with somebody when I went out of town, if I knew you know, someone. Yeah. But that was about it. And when we moved to Vegas, I, that was one of the first things I told my wife. As soon as I can get into a jujitsu gym, I got to pick this aspect of my life back up. Nice. So um, 2018 is when I started back up in a Cobra, uh, I'm at a Cobrinha Academy here. Uh, Charles Cobrinha's headquarter academy is in uh, Orange County, not too far away, about four hours away. And then one of his um, black belts, who's a former world champion, um, uh, Hector Vasquez, has an academy uh, here in Vegas. And um, that's now myself, both of my boys, my wife has done a little bit there as well. We all train out of that academy. And so um, I've, I've got back immersed into it. I got I got a stripe on a purple belt now, kind of inching my way up. But nice. I, when I'm when I'm able to and diligent and not distracted, I'm, I usually try to get three or four sessions a weekend. Um, those classes yeah. are sixty to ninety minutes, depending on which ones I go to. And then, um, you know, I, I still am around. I'm around it a lot more because of the fighting scene. So totally. the the conversations and the the intellect around it is constantly getting tossed around. You know, I'm watching fighters talk about techniques. Oh, come here. Let me, can I see that? Let me show you. Let me, can you show me that? <laughs> and so it's it, um, it just a lot more immersed in it now. But definitely something that, you know, I don't know if I'll ever get a black belt, but it's something that will be a part of my life for the rest of my life as, as I see. Um, totally. And it's a good recreational tool yeah. for my kids right now, too. Yeah, I bet they I bet yeah. they have a blast with it. I see you post a couple of things that they're you're hilarious, doing it and they man. look like they love it. Yeah, they're hilarious. <laughs> yeah, it's been so it's yeah, it's the end of August, end of August. So it's been just about yeah. six months since I, I started. And I came from zero uh like wrestling or any kind of background in that. So it was like brand spanking new to me to be and it was uh literally like two and a half weeks in and like the beginning of that second week, I'm like, okay, yep. I'm in this yep. now. This is, this is dope. I'm part of it. And we, you were one of the ones that we had our little covert secret rolling session <laughs> at summer strong outside in the, Dude, outside I don't, I don't the think that's going to be so we covert anymore. There were so many people talking about that. I think that's going to be a legitimate <laughs> thing. Uh, it was pretty cool though. I mean, just to like be that, you know, we d it yeah. wasn't a thing. We just Brandon put awesome. it together and Jamie had the mats. It was, yeah. it was a blast, man. I mean, and it was, I, I told Jamie when I had him on the podcast, it was like rolling in a cast iron skillet out there in that warm. heat doing, doing three or four minute rounds for 20 minutes or whatever yep. we were doing. Yep. Those little three minute rounds were intense, man. Cause it, it was so hot and it just felt like I was breathing yeah. steam. Yeah. It, yeah, <laughs> yeah it was it was super cool it was cool for me because i mean some of those are my those are some of my closest friends that i've never done anything like that yeah. with and it's just it's just totally 
five degrees closer that you get when you swap sweat like that. Um, and you know, your buddy chokes you out or you choke your buddy out, whatever. Um, so it was super, super cool experience. I'm glad they did that. It was a I lot of fun. There again, oh, did you lose me again? You still good? Uh-oh. We back on? Oh, I, I yep. got you now. Are you there? There we go. I lost right. you for a couple minutes. Um, yeah, no, it was just, it was super cool that they did that. I'm glad they did because um, it was just another nice highlight to an already just awesome weekend. But, uh, yeah, you know, something about just getting a little closer with close friends and, you know, getting choked out <laughs> yeah. by one of them or choking one of them out. And, you know, it's just, just something that draws you closer, man. That's, it's kind of like bucks in the it wild, really you know, they beat the crap out of each other, but you don't ever, they don't really kill each other. <laughs> yeah. They just sort of walk off when they're done. And right. that's kind of what we did. Just yeah. rough each other and up and then they're good. about that. I don't know. It's weird. It's kind of macho, but it's super cool. Yeah. <laughs> it's true though. Yeah. It's true though. It was funny. Cause I was telling, uh, I was telling Brandon, like, Cause at the, cause the, the class that I go to here, I go to the 5am class in the mornings and a lot of the guys that are in that class are, um, law enforcement guys, just cause that's, you know, schedule wise, they're either coming off their night shift or whatever. And they're coming to the class at the end. And a lot of them are like Brandon and Jamie size. And that's just like who I yeah. roll with the majority of the time are dudes that are just generally bigger than me. And then when we did that thing down there, like when I got to roll with you, I'm like, oh man, like some, I can actually do some of these things <laughs> now because he's now. like the same, he's like kind of the same size. I don't have to just yeah. like scramble and like yep. <laughs> alter everything. But yeah, I'll was, tell you what, it'll really awesome. teach you that, so that is when you roll with a girl that's smaller than you and they show yes. you just how effective some of those techniques can be. <laughs> totally. And that's my, that's my, uh, my professor that teaches the morning class is, um, she's, She's, she got her black belt in November, um, but she's like five two. I mean, she's like Amanda yeah. size, your wife size. And, uh, and like I roll with her and she just flips me all over the place and just like, yeah. like it's nothing. I'm just like, okay, there's it something works. to this. <laughs> <laughs> it's awesome, man. I was, yeah, like I said, I was really pumped. We got to do that. It was fun. Um, I wanted to ask you, I had one of the, one of the things I wanted to ask you, I wrote down, uh, because it's, it's funny how the conversation started in our group chat because we always talk about uh we talked about it the other day just like the everybody getting the prepared and the stuff and we joke about like we're gonna go buy our group is gonna go buy like 50 acre plot of land and we're all just gonna live off the grid there with each other yeah that'd be a pretty capable 50 acres going on it it really would be with the guys that we've got in it um but you are super into a lot of the firearms and hunting world and all that kind of stuff as well. And you're actually doing, uh, you just posted about it. Like what, like a week ago, their blood origins is doing a little project with you, uh, coming up soon. Can you do much, say much in the uh, way of that yet? Or it's still in the works. So I won't say a ton more? about it, but you know, if you know, yeah. if you know Robbie and that crew, I mean, essentially what they do is, is they advocate the values around hunting, how people get into hunting, um, it exposes non-hunters to understanding like the whys and the hows and the spiritual side and the connections that humans have or used to have to going out and harvesting their own food, you know, um, mm -hmm. and the camaraderie that that builds with generations, you know, and, and friends and neighbors. And so that's what it, that's what it is. It'll be the perspective 
of, of me, how that's happened in my life and kind of like they've that's highlighted cool. in others. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it should be cool, man. They, they're so good at it, at digging into your history and digging into, great I'm like, it. I don't even remember that. Yeah. I'm glad you reminded me of that. Like, <laughs> but, um, yeah, so it's cool. I'm, I'm excited about that, but yeah, you know, I, I just, um, I, I hunted and fished as a kid growing up. I had a dad and I had uncles and, and aunts that were all heavily into it that, um, I was just always around it. Um, when I was a kid, I definitely fished a lot more than we, than we hunted. My dad was a tournament fisherman. I had an uncle who was a tournament fisherman. Oh, cool. Um, and so I did father son tournaments with my dad when I was a kid. Um, and when you, you know, there's difference between like, just to go catch a few fish so you can eat that night. Um, and then like competitively fishing and, you know, that starts to get into techniques and tactics and timing. And, you know, you're getting into like different times of the year when they're in the spawn, the pre-spawn, the post-spawn. And, um, and this was, this was largemouth or bass fishing, mostly largemouth, some smallmouth. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, and then, you know, during the wintertime, I'd get to go whitetail hunting with my uncles and my cousins, um, sometimes with dogs, sometimes tree stands, um, sometimes just on the ground, which is tough in the south because it's all swampy and there's bugs everywhere. I mean, the mosquitoes yeah. will fly off with you if you if you don't prepare <laughs> yourself the right way. Um, and then small game hunting and trapping as well. So we did rabbits and squirrels and um, upland birds and, you know, quail, pheasants, you know, we did all mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. I never really got into being like married to one species of anything. I just always enjoyed like, yeah. all right, we went, we harvested an animal, we ate it. And that, I don't know if that was just always awesome. And so now, you know, yeah. moving out West, now I'm just kind of getting obsessed with wanting to spot and stalk <laughs> a mule deer and with a bow and that yes. that's where that's where i'm at right now haven't done it yet um and i'm excited i leave uh next weekend on friday to meet a crew out at big chino in uh in arizona nice for a five or six day hunt and it's it's one of the toughest areas it's an otc hunt there are absolute giants running around there but mm -hmm. they're giant for a reason man they are smart and they're intellectual and that desert is a tough place to hunt them on. Um, so yeah. I'm looking forward to that challenge. Um, I've been shooting my bow like crazy for the last eight months. I mean, I get up early. I've sacrificed jujitsu time. I've sacrificed some of my, my workout time to get on the range more often, to practice shooting from kneeling positions, to practice, um, you know, shooting at awkward angles, shooting up, shooting down, just because that's what we're going to run into. And I just want to be as prepared as I can yeah. be when we get out there. So I've got some good mentors out there, you know, Brandon Lilly and, and Bert Soren. Um, and then the crew from big Chino junior, Michael, they, they've been awesome with just giving pointers and, you know, prepare for this, make sure you have this. Um, Josh Smith is going out with us as well from Montana knife. So oh, I'm, nice. I'm pumped to just get to hang out with that guy. Um, he's just that's an awesome, awesome conversation every time I get to catch up with him. So yeah, that, that have you, uh, what's that? have you come up, have you come up here for any, any hunts or I haven't been to Idaho. It's on my list. I actually had a fighter. Um, nice. there for a while. He was a training partner of one of our guys who he guides and traps in Idaho. I don't know the area. I have nice. to dig that up for you. So you know what I'm talking about, but this dude, man, he's got a trophy room that is ridiculous. I mean, he's, 
mountain lion. It takes <laughs> at least one mountain lion every year. Um, elk, yep. mule deer, uh, pronghorn. I mean, you name it. Um, and he's on the go. I mean, if that dude is, he's got a trap line set somewhere all the time. Like he is on the, on the go. <laughs> so anyhow, he's, he's invited me, um, a couple of times and they used to, a couple of years ago, he told me about this. I don't know if they have it anymore. He told me about this program that Idaho had. If you were a first time out of state hunter, it was like 30% off your tags, your first out of state hunt. Oh, and, um, nice. so that really enticed me. I was like, man, that's awesome. Cause most, most, states they're looking to capitalize on that out-of-state hunter <laughs> but yeah things i mean it just totally. gets expensive so um i hadn't I, I i didn't take advantage of that i wish i would have but it's definitely on my bucket list idaho for sure is utah is colorado mm-hmm. is i'll get to do arizona twice this year uh, this otc archery hunt here next week and then i have a a bull elk rifle tag for november um, so I'm looking forward to that. That'll be a first time for me as well. Never, never pursued elk in the wild. So that's, uh, I'm stoked, man. I'm They're stoked, fun, man. Yeah. They're fun. It'd be a good time to get you up here. I, I'm down. I, here yeah, man. I, and I don't look, I've been telling the guys in our group chat, let's figure it out and go up there, but I don't care if it's just me. <laughs> I'll, I'll definitely get my butt yeah, up there. <laughs> You're the closest one to me. Yeah. It makes the most sense. Everybody else is like other side of the country yep. down in the South. And it's like, you could be up here in yep. a handful of hours, you know, <laughs> definitely make it happen. Um, the bow part of it is the, one of the last things I wanted to talk about with you, because that's one of the things that I have just very recently gotten uh, into uh, is the archery side of things. And I have a hand-me-down bow from my, my best friend's dad, who was, it was my, best friend's older brother's oldest old one and he's just like hey dude just sitting in our garage you want to come use this one i'm like absolutely i like i'll take anything to shoot with right now and just get it dialed in but it's one of those things like where you mentioned and even sacrificing like gym time or class time to go shoot like it's that i mean it's a skill just like anything else you got to just dial it in and spend the reps and and shoot all the time to to get into that so i'm like just at this very beginning stage of like just trying to absorb everything possible and so i wouldn't be surprised if i start texting you fairly heavily to ask you stuff about it because i'm like i'm getting into it it is and it's such a thing that is so there's so many little details that you can fine tune that can dramatically improve your consistency and your your accuracy Mm -hmm. and um but it's like if you spend too much if you spend six days away from it and you come back some of those details fall off and then you have to spend reps knocking that yeah. dust off well no one said bert has said it better to me recently than anyone else like when you're in a hunting scenario man you you're preparing for one arrow i mean that's what you're preparing you get yeah. one shot that's it and then that animal's gone they're either laying on the ground or they're gone and so um really getting to the point where you're not spending your first couple of reps making mistakes that you haven't right. worked out of your routine. Like if you're routinely chipping away at those things, then that first shot just starts to get crispier. You can tell when I've shot for four or five days in a row, because those first two or three are just money. And then it might deteriorate a little yeah. bit. But man, when I've had five or six days in between and I go out and shoot, that first shot usually pisses me off because it just reminds me like, <laughs> right. oh, asshole, you haven't been doing it in a few days. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Totally. And it's funny too, because like the, the bow that I do have, it's, I mean, it's an older bow, probably like 12, 15 years old. 
they don't even make the model anymore. It's an old Hoyt. Uh, but like I, I was, when I started, I would like always tell myself, Oh, I just need to get a new one. And like, you know, like the bow sure. makes all the difference or whatever. And then I'm like, you know, it probably makes a little bit of difference, but this bow also has killed about 30 deer in its life. And so I'm like, it's not just, with this too, you know, I still have my, um, <laughs> I have a PSE that I got when I was in high school and, um, man, that, that had to have been 1997, 1996, something like that. Mm-hmm. And we still have it. And I still pull it back when we go. It has zero let off. It's just a beast to try to, it's like 65 yeah. pounds, but it feels like 105 pounds. Um, yeah. But uh, when we go home, I'll bring my, I have a Matthews I shoot now, but that thing is, you know, the technology gets so easy. Um, I'll shoot that yeah. thing and then I'll pull that PSE out. And I'm like, God, what, how did I used to, and I actually killed a deer with that bow. And I'm like, how did I do this? But you can get dialed in, man. And, it, and you know, you think about what like what um, natives and stuff hunted with. Like they wouldn't go to a pro shop and have this thing tuned specifically for their arrows, <laughs> specifically for their right. you know length of pull and all. Dude, it's like it can be done. So yeah, and that was funny too because you brought up that, and I listened to that meat eater podcast yeah. after you told us about it that day about with all the arrow technology and the weight of the sure. arrows and everything it was in i mean that kind of stuff Dude, too just if you're just fascinating to hear him talk marginally about interested in archery and you listen to that episode um with i think his name was ed ashby from the ashby foundation you will get yep. sucked down the rabbit hole the even if you just have a just minimal <laughs> bit of interest you listen to that and you're like whoa yeah I've had so many conversations about that at the range and at 3D shoots and stuff now (laughs) because I I always ask guys, I'm like, everyone asks, like, what kind of bow are you shooting? My first question is, what kind of arrow are you throwing? What's your arrow look like? As soon as they say, like, oh, I'm about a 470 grain, I'm just, I'm not interested anymore. I had a couple guys are like, oh, this is 650 (laughs) grain. I'm like, oh, I'm like, let me see what you're working with. And I start breaking it down you're talking but i man there's a dude i shoot with at my outdoor range here he shoots um it's a 650 grain arrow it's got a 250 grain broadhead single bevel uh dual two blade broadhead and um so soon the first time he told me i'm like have you ever looked listen to ed ashby and he's like man i've been following his research for years i was like oh like so i started talking to this guy and um and yeah, man, it, it, yeah, like I said, if you're just marginally interested and you listen to that conversation around the dynamics of arrows and what makes an arrow more lethal mm-hmm. than another one, you'll hit, man, it sucks you in quick. It's so interesting. And it's, and it's it works. Cool. Like it, it, it is effective physics around an arrow. Um, so, yeah. And you know what works? Because he, he opens up like some of those stories talking about how he was doing research on what type of arrow would take a down white a rhino. rhino. And you're like, yeah. like what? I didn't, you like most people can't even comprehend like an like that's a like three thousand pound animal. Like how do you, yeah with a stick? <laughs> yeah, <it's> insane <laughs> with a stick exactly. Yeah. It's crazy. But yeah, it's been a, I, I can, that's another thing. Like I, I tend to be kind of obsessive about like hobbies and stuff like that. When I get into yep. one, I like just absorb it and Man, dive into the thing it, i like know. about archery too is it's such a mental release like you can't think about anything else yeah. you're so zoned in and focused on all these little details 
that it really removes you from everything else is what I love. And it doesn't matter if I get to do it for five minutes in the morning before I go to work or if it's a one-hour session on the weekend or 90-minute session on the weekend. Um, you know, it, it's the same. Like, if I'm in it for five minutes, I'm zoned out of everything for five minutes. And then, you know, if yeah. I'm in it for 90 minutes, I'm, I forget who I am outside of that archery range for 90 minutes. <laughs> right. So I love that aspect. Because you can't focus on it. I mean, if you, if you focus on even one thing other gone. than the shot, like it's going to just disappear. Yeah. It's gone. You know, it's the same thing about sitting in the ice. You know, like you, if you focus on anything other than your breath during that, it's yeah. going to suck oh, man, that so whole true. time. So true. Um, my, 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 my wife actually just like, Three weeks ago, she'd been asking. She wanted a bow. She had a bow. I got her a bow a while back, and then she didn't shoot it for a while. So then when I was looking to upgrade my bow, I sold my old one. I sold hers, too, just so I could beef up things. Then lo and behold, because I was like, she doesn't care. She doesn't want to do it anymore. Lo and behold, like six months later, she's like, hey, where's my bow at? And I'm like, eh. (laughs) So so we went and we got her a a new bow. Um, She got all sized up for it. Um, she went with a thumb release, took a lesson. They actually, so in the past, she's always drawn right-handed and they did a little assessment and figured out that she is right-handed, but she's left eye dominant. So the pro was Uh like, Hey, I'm going to just encourage you like to really try a left-handed bow so you can learn how to use your left eye. And she was super skeptical at first was weird, like drawing back with her left hand and that kind of thing. But they started Mm -hmm. her at like 30 pounds. So it wasn't like it was a feat to get it back. And, um, dude, in like a week, I mean, she's grouping stuff super tight at 20 and 30 <laughs> yards. And I was like, how do you like That's the awesome. left? She was like, Oh, I can't even believe I was ever shooting with my right eye. This is so clear. This is so great. <laughs> so um, much easier. And she's almost more <laughs> obsessive than me, dude. She'll send me pics during the day where I'm at work. Look at this group. I'm like, what, what are you, you're shooting right now. I'm like, That's not fair. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, she, she gets on it a lot. She's, uh, she's very interested in getting good with it. She's potentially interested in, in, uh, doing a hunt one day. I've got some key players. I've got Robbie and, 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 uh, um, and JP from big Chino and even, uh, Mm -hmm. even old George from salt river. You got a chat with her, just talking to her about, Hey, let me, she, he, he kind of asked her, he's like, what is it you have a hard time with hunting? Because she has taken a deer before, and she felt terrible about it. And um, so George got into a really deep conversation about it and got into, like, why the, what the importance, are, importance is around, like, thinning herds and taking out mature animals and, you know, things like that. And it really opened her eyes mm-hmm. to it, aside from, of course, harvesting food. But um, – so she's kind of wrapped her head around the concept and she's, she's without saying it, she's preparing for it right now. I mean, she's looking, nice. she's doing rucks. <laughs> she's looking at packs. She's looking at boots. She's I'm like, you don't do that to go walk around the block. Like, <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? She's, got, she's like sizing up which of my, I've got a, a couple now of, of um, Josh's knives. She loves the Kydex sheath. She's like, Oh, this one clips onto my pack. Nice. Mm-hmm. I'm like, what do you need a six inch blade for on your back? You're just walking around the block. So there's subliminal messages going on, but man, I cannot wait to the day it, that man. me and her are on the side of a mountain somewhere scouting an animal. So that's awesome, yeah. man. 
That's awesome. Well, uh, we'll get out of here. We're coming right up on an hour here. So thank you, man. Yeah, I appreciate dude. you coming on. It was a blast to talk and spend some more time actually talking like face to face instead of just over silly group the, chat. the DMs <laughs> and the, the silly group chats. I appreciate yep. you, man. Yep. No, no worries. Thanks for having me. Great combo. Appreciate you asking all the good questions. Um, if, uh, you know, I always throw it out there. If anybody ever wants to reach out, follow up. I'm a pretty social guy. Uh, easy to talk to. Absolutely. Uh, you can hit me on IG, bo.sandoval, um, or on Twitter at uh, Oly Strength, O-L-Y Strength. Um, I'm not always the fastest to get back, but I will get back. I, I get people surprised sometimes. It'll be like three weeks down the road, and I'll answer their <laughs> question. And they're like, whoa, like you answered me. Like I, I'm like, yeah, I didn't blow you off. I just get tied up, and I'm, I've got kids. And, yeah. you know, so I don't do it intentionally, but I love having the conversation. So always welcome. Awesome, man. Well, thanks again, brother. I'll talk to you, I'm sure, or probably later this afternoon in the group. Yeah, some point. sounds good. Probably about five minutes. But. <laughs> All right, brother. <laughs> yeah, right. All right, Ross. All right. Have a good one. Thanks, man.